All right, now, follow me for a second. I have something I think I need to talk about. It's Halloween season. This is our Halloween episode, and I've been watching Halloween movies, and I think I have found the wokest Halloween movie and the wokest horror movie of all time. Oh, no. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's the wokest movie. Follow me for a second. I'm it is about... I'm getting angry. It is about an oppressed people... The Irish, my people, yes, reclaiming a cultural practice from colonizers. Now, in this instance, the practice that they are reclaiming is the one we know them best for: human sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of young children. Sure. So, in the film, Connell Cochran is an Irish hero. No, he is a hero because I'm totally with he's you reclaiming here. his holiday from the white masses. And from the Christian masses. That's probably more appropriate, but Halloween 3 is the wokest horror movie of all time, and I will hear nothing of it otherwise. I mean, I also will totally agree with you that he's the hero of the film, and as much as I love Tom Atkins, he's well, trying we have to two ruin heroes. everything. We have two heroes, because Tom Atkins is a hero, too. He's a boozing, womanizing asshole, and that makes him a hero, to my mind. Should we maybe say who we are? I mean, people know who I am. <laughs> they actually don't because you're the more famous one. So why don't you start? Okay. Well, you are listening to the Evil Eye <laughs> podcast about goth movies and Halloween movies in this case. And I our Halloween am, episode. Yes. For our Halloween episode. And I am your co-host, Sam Deegan. I am your other co-host and less famous co-host, Robert Scavarla. All right. Enough. Hey, you're a horror writer. You're famous. You've got books. I've got like conspiracy columns on websites that's exciting though i suppose okay halloween halloween it is halloween or it will be in a few days by the time this episode goes up so what we are going to do today is kind of our halloween special because we love halloween specials yeah and it makes me a little bit sad that you started the episode with Halloween 3 because if I had to pick a single favorite Halloween film, and I don't mean like Halloween the franchise, I mean the holiday, it would be Halloween 3. And part of one. me feels like one. at some point we have to do an episode on that film, even though I don't know that it's really goth. No. It's not, but Blood also Blood Sacrifice is goth. Sacrificing things. Yeah. Many goth There's a lot movies. of... There's also a lot of crossover between goth subculture and paganism. There is a sacrifice or an attempted sacrifice in at least one of the movies we will be covering today. So why don't we intro what movies we are covering for this, the Evil Eye Halloween special. I loved it, but it's like one of those flicks you shouldn't see alone, you know? We're at the premiere of the new horrifying thriller, Night of the Demons. Go with some friends. Lots of them. Once the lipstick scene is terrifying as they say. Oh yeah, it's real scary. Makes me wish I would have parked a little closer to the theater. The night of the demons, 16-year-old Angela is possessed with party. Yeah, I'd see it again. Maybe in the daytime. Night of the demons. The party's just begun. We will be talking about Night of the Demons. And Night of the Demons 2. And sort of night trying of to avoid demons talking 3. about Night of the Demons 3, but we'll get there. So Night of the Demons is an interesting franchise because in my mind, it's one of the gothest movies of all time, at least the first one. I 
don't know if I agree with you, but what's wrong with you? Well, okay. So first of all, we have Angela. to we have to talk about the rules. Well, I have a question. Ooh. So okay. I have a question about Angela that I will get to as soon as I explain the rules. If you have never, we're going to have to stop doing this at some point because it's kind of annoying. But if you miss the <laughs> <laughs> if you miss the first episode, you should go back and listen to it. We talk about a movie called Goth uh, from. Brad Sykes, 2000, 2001, yeah, it's 2000, like 2003, it's a, I think. The whole decade's a blur to me. Yes. Um, but that movie establishes the rules of what it means to be goth. And so, so what we, does it mean to be goth? Rule number one, embrace the darkness. Rule number two? Kill your fear. Rule number three? Live for death. I mean, these are all going to be in at least the first two movies. I mean, the third one, it has it, but, you know, it's the third one, and we don't really yeah. need to talk about so it. So the rules apply. Okay, so... When you suggested that we do this franchise do for not, Halloween. Do not attack my goth queen. Is she goth, though? She is. But, she is very okay. goth. Okay, but hang on. So I have never been a big fan of Night of the Demons. I oh, don't, my God. So I don't dislike not it. friends. Well, I've made you watch a lot of garbage for this podcast. You made me watch, so. Hall- you made me watch Night of the Demons 3. I watched Halloween 3 on my own. <laughs> So I didn't make you watch Night of the Demons 3. It just seemed like an obvious conclusion. Uh, Night of the Demons is one of those movies that I want to like more than I actually do. And it's also one of those movies that I feel like forces me, and I'm sure everyone who has listened to episodes of this knows this about me already, will force me to out myself as a non-goth. How dare you get out of my very goth home? You just said Angela isn't goth. Well, I have a question, which I'm going to get to in a second, but not outing myself as non-goth, but outing myself as being a kind of a snob. Oh, really? Shut up. (laughs) It's, It's one of those movies that I feel like is hard for me to enjoy because it's a little too, like mainstream cult if you know what i mean funny you say that because at least one date i have been on the woman was Uh like she was like hey you pick movies you like horror movies it's close to halloween pick some horror movies so i picked night of the demons thinking hey this is a great movie one of the first times i realized normal people don't think most horror movies are good after it was over she was like, what the fuck was that? Okay, well, I hope you didn't go on a second date with her. Because... I mean, we went on a bunch of dates. We what? still We still made out that night. Everything was fine. I was a teenager. The world was good. But it was the first time I realized there are bad movies or movies that normal people think are bad that I'm like, no, this is awesome. Yeah. And this is one of those movies. And I will this, stand by it. I mean, this is one of those movies that I would say is definitely safe to show someone on a first date if they're like. Not that day. I mean, it wasn't I, even a first date. I also should never be allowed to pick movies for people's first dates, including my own. You'd pick some weird shit like what? Malatesta's Carnival of Blood or something. I would never make somebody watch Malatesta for a first date, but I did used to hate. I don't know if I've told this story on this podcast before, but please go. I used to haze people. Oh, if, no. <laughs> well, this is a dude thing. OK, which is funny that you would say that because only guys I know do this where it would like they would purposely try and make like a girlfriend or a partner suffer by making them sit through something. OK, well, I'm basically a guy that, you know, in, sure. in a manner of speaking. But you also have to understand that. If somebody who is not in our particular 
wider subculture tries to date me, <laughs> it's very difficult for me to explain. Like, especially, I think it's a little easier at this point in my life, but it's like 90% of what I do revolves around watching movies. So if if you can't handle, you know, that, you're not going to be, like, it's just a waste of everyone's time. But I used to make people watch things like, you know, Cannibal Holocaust and the Fulci movies and with it's it seems terrible now in retrospect. So here's the thing that you do. You just don't date. I'm at that point in my life. I just don't date because introducing people to things like this when you are, you know, in your mid 30s, it's like trying to introduce some normal person that you meet on Tinder or Hinge or OkCupid or Bumble or Fuck App, whatever people are using today, whatever the kids love. <laughs> fuck App. Whatever they're into. It's very hard to find people who are into many of the same things. So either you have to be willing to lower your standards in the sense that, like, they're still good people. They're, you know, you want to get to know them, but, like, that part of yourself, you either have to compartmentalize or just kind of give up a little bit. And I'm just like... Eh, I, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I don't do any kind of online dating, and I never have. You should and try fuck out. I should, no. <laughs> I think that's called going to a bar and getting wasted and just sort of finding someone to go home with. True. That's basically fuck app. Uh, so, no, I have never been on any of those apps, nor do I plan to, and I don't have very good social skills, so I don't think it would go super well, which <laughs> we have already gone on quite a tangent. So my question about Angela. Speaking of people with poor social skills. Speaking of people with poor social skills. the when I So my impression of Angela was always that she was super goth, but when I rewatched the movie this week, it made me think that like she wasn't actually goth at all she's just wearing a halloween costume no i don't get that sense the bauhaus scene she is way too into bauhaus even if it was stooge's boombox she's way too into bauhaus for a normal person to be dancing like that she's also demonically possessed goth demonically possessed they're all you know six of one half a dozen of the other uh, I have to say that the church that my family grew up as part of would agree with you. <laughs> well, speaking of evil institutions. Yes. Okay, so Night of the Demons. We begin Night of the Demons. 1988. With one of the best openings for any horror movie I can think of from that era. It has all the things that you want out of a spooky kind of silly horror movie. It has the awesome title. The title, title sequence card. is so good. It has the music, which is wonderful. Uh, most people probably would laugh at it, but I think it's cool as hell. It has that kind of like proto synth wave sound that everyone tries to emulate now with like really but, shitty yes. synthesizer plugins on their, you know, laptops and Ableton. But here it's just awesome. Yeah. I mean, again, this is one of those movies that it has all the right ingredients. I just don't know what it's missing for me. I mean, or what you are missing. I mean, I, a lot of things I think are on that list, but it, it just, it's, it's one of those movies that in a weird way reminds me so much of return of the living dead. Just how Definitely. you have this group of sort of punk kids. Well, one at least. Yeah, but in Return Stooge. of the Living Dead, well, you've got a punk and a goth, if we go with your theory that Angela is actually it's goth. It's not a theory, it's the truth, it's and a fact. And it's sort of the same thing in Return of the Living Dead, because yes. they do have some normal friends with them. 
So that is something I definitely wanted to bring up, the fact that it feels like a number of other movies. Um, for example, the opening is basically just Legend of Hell House. Oh. But the movie itself, Without Night of the Fashion. Night of the Demons, the demons themselves, the way they act, are very reminiscent of the Lamberto Bava movie Demons. So I was wondering, do you think yes. this movie was intentionally referencing that? That was an Italian horror movie that came out a few years before. Mm -hmm. But this was only, like, I think, like three years after. I think yeah, that was 85. Yeah, two or three years after, yeah. So the writer, um, Joe Augustine, and the director. From Philadelphia. From Philadelphia, who we will probably talk about a few times in this episode because he's very nice and awesome. And director Kevin Tenney, uh, Witchboard movies, right? Indeed. It feels like they definitely saw those other movies at the very least. If they were not trying to directly emulate them, it feels like those movies were an influence. Yeah, I mean, I have to say one of my favorite things about this movie is that it feels like it was made by people who really like horror movies. And there are a lot of some of my favorite tropes. Like, I'm sort of glad that you suggested we watch this because one of the things, so something I do every October is I try to watch 31 movies that are new to me. So October. Yes. So not new. What are you doing October this year? So this year I just have a sort of a random list of horror movies I've never seen, but a lot of them happen to be movies set in mortuaries and funeral homes and things like that. Like yesterday I watched One Dark Night, which I had never seen before it's and a lot loved. Of fun. And like somehow I've never seen Mausoleum or Mortuary. So at least well, yeah, they're both fun. I'm gonna say I was gonna say only one, but Mortuary is a little boring, but fun. And cool there, I think there's another one called Funeral Home that's that on my list really that I slow. haven't seen. I'm so, doing all American horror movies this year, so. I think most of mine have wound up being American because normally, and I think we've talked about this on this podcast before, but my preference is for European horror. Well, I mean, so. in the sense that they are American-made and about America. So, for example, Texas Chainsaw Massacre being the most American of all horror movies because it's about deindustrialization the death of the working class. And this is all me reading way far too far into it. No, I think that's dead on. I mean, I think it's one of the most like American movies of the seventies. Toby Hooper being the most American of directors. He's up there. I think I struggle with a lot of the sort of beloved American horror directors like Toby Hooper and Wes Craven and George Romero in the same way that I kind of struggle with Night of the Demons. It's like I get why people love them. They just don't resonate with me all the time. And and that's not true of things like Texas Chainsaw or Texas Chainsaw 2, both of which I'm obsessed with. But, you know, it just, I don't know. I'm just a snob. You really are. I'm I sorry. Mean, this movie begins in the best way, or at least the way all movies about Halloween should, with a pumpkin in the beginning. I can only think of another one um 2007's murder party which also begins with its first image as a jack-o-lantern i want to say that satan's little helper the jeff lieberman movie begins the same way also possible but this one begins which with is... a pumpkin on top of a car because stooge the big goon punk who right racist misogynistic all the things you would expect of a punk in an 80s horror movie because yep. it's being written by someone who probably is not a punk he's all of these things but weirdly He's best friends with Roger, who uh, I, I hate to say token black character, but that's the way he's positioned in the beginning of the movie so that they can subvert yeah. expectations later in the film. And then yes. um, 
probably the most annoying of the characters, Helen. Oh, poor Helen. She she seems nice, but the way she acts throughout the film, she doesn't really have a lot to work with. So she's no. just yelling constantly and screaming and freaking out. Well, and I think that is one of the things that kind of annoys me about a lot of these 80s movies with kids in a haunted house is that so many of the female characters are just like annoying and loud and shouting the whole time. And one of the things that's interesting about this movie is they purposely set characters up in the ways that you would expect them to be in a movie like this, only to change things around later. So Roger's a great example of that. We'll get to Sal, another character later, who has a similar subversion of the arc for his character. I love Sal. <laughs> but we begin by meeting our final girl, Judy, the young, blonde, virginal heroine. Yeah, who hilariously spends most of the film dressed as Alice in Wonderland. Yes. And I'll give Judy some credit because she is planning to hang out with her boyfriend, Jay, who is the fucking worst. Who also, again, has a character arc where he goes in a direction you don't expect. I disagree. I think they set him up early in the film where you think he's going to be a good guy and it just does not go in that direction. At least that's the way it plays to me early on in the film. He seems like the nice guy boyfriend who eventually becomes a bigger and bigger scumbag as the movie goes along. I mean, he's pretty much a scumbag from that first scene. He's like trying to make out with her in front of her mom or some shit. But you you contrast that with Sal, who I guess we should bring in now, who's the overt scumbag, and they're both Who is revealed competing. to actually be a good guy. Yeah, who's competing. They're competing for the affections of Judy. And by affections, you mean they're both trying to bang Judy. I mean, you know, Sal can only be such a good guy because he's Italian-American and really they can only be so good. <laughs> you you just alienated, I don't know. Irish, Italians, uh, I, I got to work for, I mean, my family's Slovak, so I can't alienate them. <laughs> um, well, also, before we move past the beginning, there's a trope that I think is hilarious that I want to say it shows up starting in the late 70s, but it's just like aggressive in... 80s horror movies specifically american horror movies the creepy little brother who tries to look at his naked sister it, i'm pretty sure it's in all three films it's a, it's definitely in the first and the third but it's also in things like trick or treats which we will have to talk about later which is one of my favorite halloween movies ever with that fucking creepy magician kid what does the uh younger brother say in this one he's like you have bodacious boobies yes yeah <laughs> Great and line. He says something like, if they get any bigger, she's going to tip over or something like that. It happens in... He do, he definitely De Palma's her in this movie. He does. It also, it reminds me so much of the creepy little brother in Funhouse, <laughs> speaking of Toby Hooper. But before we get to that, I, I do want to point out Judy's first interaction in the movie was with an old man who is walking home, who Sal creeps out. But the old man in this one has the razor blades and the apple. Yes, which will play out later. Yeah, one of the great things. Great. One of the great things, and I have to give uh, writer Joe Augustine credit for this, is he does the you know the Chekhov's gun thing where he sets something up, and you see it play out later. You see like he pays off pretty much everything he sets up, which is something I do like about this film that it it has a lot of beloved horror movie tropes, but it also has these kind of like Halloween tropes. I mean the whole. If for some reason you're listening to this and you've never seen Night of the Demons, the whole plot is they go have a party in an abandoned funeral home that happens to be haunted by demons. Right. And so like I said, Legend of Hull, Legend of Hell House. Hull House, Hell House. 
Well, I don't know. Legend of Hell House is a ripoff of The Haunting, and right. it's not... But a better version of The Haunting. Uh, agreed. A much better version. Thank you, Richard Matheson. Yeah. But it's also not just a bunch of kids who are trying to go party. It's right. I just mean the very are... basic setup of going to that house to oh, yeah. investigate, party, do whatever. I mean, I do think that's one of the more fun ways that that kind of haunted house like loose framework changes shape into the eighties is all of these haunted house movies are basically getting a group of people together in a haunted house and trapping them there. And in the earlier ones, it's often people who are investigating some kind of supernatural phenomenon. But by the eighties, they're like, fuck it. We just want to party and bang in a coffin, which they do in this film. This is why I believe Angela is a goth through and through. When uh, when Judy is on the phone with her boyfriend, Jay, Jay reveals that the party that they're going to is not a school dance or whatever the hell they were supposed to be going to. It's the party a at dance. Hall House. Yeah, it was a Halloween dance. And I think all three Have films. Dances. They're on the way to it and they never make it there. Or they do make it there in the case of the, the second, second one. one. Yeah. But in this one, Angela is talking to Jay and he reveals that Angela is throwing the party. Judy freaks out. And Jay's response is, who gives a better Halloween party? It's like Christmas for her. She's clearly into spooky stuff. Oh, you may, you might be right. But if she was, why would she dress up like herself for Halloween? I mean, uh, to be fair, I didn't know too many goth girls who wore full-on black wedding gowns on a normal basis. Well, you didn't grow up in the city. I grew up in the suburbs. That's true. A very rural suburb, so definitely not. Yeah. Um, I think we had like one or two goths, and this was the and an- you were, era. And you this were was one of the two. The era of Manson. Well, so I was less overt as a goth. I didn't really dress as one, partially because I didn't want to get my ass kicked. Yeah. I. The only reason I didn't get beat up is because everyone thought I was a homicidal maniac. I positioned myself as a stoner and everyone just kind of let me alone or tried to hit me up for weed even though I didn't smoke it was funny (laughs) but so Hull House we get all the cast of characters there Sal crashes the party wait you forgot about the single best scene in the movie which Which is is? in the beginning when they go to a convenience store so that Angela can steal a bunch of shit for the party I forgot about that and Linnea Quigley's character Suzanne distracts the convenience store clerks by bending over showing them her underwear and looking for like laundry detergent or whatever the hell she's looking for well Angela steals party favors yes now here is where I think you might have a point about Angela Suzanne Linnea Quigley's character and Angela are friends to be honest I didn't know too many goth girls who would have hung out with someone like Suzanne who probably would have just been popular regardless. Yeah. I mean, that was also why I was a little unsure about her actually being goth. Like it sort of seems like she's just a weirdo who I can't is believe goth we're doing for this. Halloween. I can't believe we're going back and forth, giving her goth points. You, you brought this movie to the podcast because so it's you Halloween have to deal with it. and it's a Halloween movie and we should be doing Halloween on Halloween. I mean, not Halloween, the movie. I was going to say, all right, you really want to get into God, it. They're except not. for maybe the sixth one, which is, Oh, the Paul the Rudd curse. one. Yes. The curse of Michael Myers, oh, but we'll let's not talk, talk about, about that one day. Yeah. So they get to Hull house, everybody, the, the gang, the Scooby gang, because it's kind of what they are they all end are. up in one place. And, the party kicks off with a weird mix of people. 
Um, Suzanne especially is horned up. Well, and that is the weird thing about all three of these movies is there are a couple of recurring thing, like recurring themes throughout them. One is horny that women. everyone is so fucking horny. And I mean, that's probably the truest representation of teenagers I could think of, even though most of the people playing teenagers in these movies are clearly not. And yes. when we get to the second film, that becomes very clear. But definitely. But I also think it's I mean, maybe it is. Maybe I just forget. And it is true to life. But like the girls in particular are fucking terrible. There's so <laughs> much like the dudes are scumbags for sure. But Suzanne and Angela are just really like there's so much sexual jealousy in all three of the movies between all of the female characters it's really aggressive it's like a little bit misogynistic okay i'm not going to disagree with that because i would not know given my position in life well i just it's i didn't like, read it like that i just read um they're possessed by demons so they're all trying to steal each other's boyfriends i mean they were doing that before they were demons in pretty much every film Sure, but I just I think, figured that's teenagers because that's generally how teenagers were when I was a teenager. So, I mean, I can't say I've never stolen someone's boyfriend, so you might have a point there, you but go. but it's just really aggressive here. Like, you can thank me later, Joe Augustine. <laughs> I don't think Joe Augustine cares, I don't think he's listening to this podcast. <laughs> no, he's not, but it, it is just it was something, it's something that always struck me about the first movie that is just hard to ignore because it shows up in all three. And because I pretty much watched them three in a row, it was like, damn, these girls are bitches, <laughs> but they I also don't have a lot of female are. friends. So I guess neither of us are qualified to talk about this subject. No, probably not. Um, I mean, I think you have a point there in the sense that it, you know, the team of people making this all three films, especially um, were men writing female characters. One of the reasons why I tend to give this movie a little more credit especially over other franchises is as I mentioned, they do things where they set something up and then they end up subverting the character arc that you're expecting. Roger being the prime example. So when they get to Hull house, Roger immediately is like, fuck this. This is off. He does say he's a son of a preacher, which is probably a stereotype. Yep. It's totally a stereotype, it's a stereotype. but he's also the smartest character in the film where he's like, we need to get the fuck out of here. And he spends the entire movie trying to escape. Whereas the others yeah, are just he's like the only sensible one. The others are just like, yeah, let's go off into a room somewhere and fuck. Pretty much. I mean... So I will at least give him credit there um, on that. So that's why I'm a, why I'm willing to give Augustine and Tenny a little leeway. I mean, not to play devil's advocate too oh, much here. You'd like to do I that. I do so. like to do that. So do you. But <laughs> it's a bad podcast in, for that. <laughs> in this case... We should call it the devil's advocate. We should. Uh, in this case, though... I kind of felt, and I, I've never thought about this before I watched it again this week, but it kind of made me feel a little bit like making Roger's character so responsible was a way, a little bit of a way to desexualize him. It's possible. Which seemed a little stereotypy. Like they didn't want, I don't know. They didn't want an interracial uh, relationship. relationship. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It felt like they needed a character who was like, you guys are fucking Not an dumb. Idiot. Yes. Yeah, they needed someone who was actually smart. And one of the recurring gags in this movie is that he's the least heroic person in the movie. He continually leaves Judy to die, 
which I felt was hilarious. It is really funny. It's like genuinely very funny. Yeah. Like every time she gets into trouble, normally you would be like, you would expect a character to risk themselves. And Roger's like, no, sorry, I'm going to save my own ass. Now he does again, change that at the end of the film. He eventually saves her. But But in the beginning, when they get to the party and everyone's, you know, worrying about who they're going to hook up with, Roger is like, no, this is wrong. Um, So they begin investigating and they find a mirror. And that's really where it all kind kicks of off. kicks off. It's it's also like I definitely get your point about the influence from Bava Jr.'s demons. And I think visually they're pretty similar. But this movie has this weird sort of sexually transmitted demonic possession thing <laughs> where and, and all three of the movies, there's a scene where t- Angela makes out with another girl. Yeah. And that is sort of what spreads the initial possession. Are you saying they're worried about like, those oh, evil lesbians? Those evil, evil lesbians. They're not lesbians. They're straight girls trying to get some attention. But I'm saying, is that what you think is trying to be communicated there? No, I think the movie... They're looking, they were looking for something, you know, sal- salacious. Well, and I think all three movies makes it very clear that these are just straight girls trying to get some attention from dudes. There's not like a... Okay. The kiss is often to make a dude jealous or to get a dude's attention or distract a dude away from a a third girl. The second one happens in a bathroom where there's no one watching. Fair. But the second one is also... I think the second one is better than the first movie. I disagree. (laughs) We can get into that later, though. At least we agree on the third one. But at the party, they hold a seance in front of the mirror because one of them finds, you know, strobe lights and um, Suzanne Linnea Quigley's character is like, oh, shit, hippie shit. Cool. Well, and they and Angela, do, it's Angela's know. idea. She yeah. decides what we can do to kick this party up a notch is to have a seance. And like, she's not wrong. Goth point. Yeah, she gets a goth point for wanting to dance. But then the radio and battery seance, dies. And, and holding a, a party in a spooky house. She gets some points. I'm just saying I'm not convinced that she's legitimately goth. But the seance does not work out as they had hoped or maybe better than they had hoped, depending on your perspective. Well, because after the mirror breaks, all everything like goes to hell and Linnea Quigley writes all over her face with lipstick and there's the famous lipstick scene. Which actually involves itself in all three movies in a way if i it, if i remember right i don't know if there's lipstick in the third movie but there's definitely a really awesome lipstick connection in the second movie that we could talk about later right that i um, love how they sort of tie it in i do want to point out the mirror scene has one of my favorite shots in a horror movie from the 80s with the broken mirror and you see the different yes, people in the shots i'm not a, sure it is a great shot how they did it it almost looks like they cut something out of a board but then you see like different pieces of pe- of the same person in each broken shard of glass and- yeah my assumption is the way they did that scene is that they just like cut the actual film like the way in most movies if you see a character watching tv it's you know a different film projected on top it's not actually someone watching tv so i i feel like it's a similar thing where it's just other film that is you know placed over top of the mirror spaces right but well so after the mirror breaks they decide to go their own way so everyone can fuck drink have parties dance to Bauhaus, dance to Bauhaus. but it has the reason i brought up halloween and the oppression of the irish as it may be. Oh man. Is because this movie also has a similar scene. They're all sitting, what? they're sitting in the mortuary. Is that what you call it? 
Yeah, it's a funeral home. Funeral home. So they're sitting around and one of the characters, I forget his name, the uh, dorky white dude with like the weird mullet. Mm-hmm. Not Jay, his friend. Max. He gives the history of Hull House and he talks about how um, white colonizers settled the land, uh, which was Native American land, and they built over it, um, making this movie both woke and offensive in a way, because I guess it's like undead Native American spirits haunting or spirits that predate them. It's unclear what exactly that is supposed to mean, but... I do like the sheer number of American horror movies, especially from like the late seventies and into the eighties that are all about, you know, colonizers taking over the land and causing some sort of evil because they killed native populations. The pinnacle being, and it's not a native population, but it's a population that was settling the land, the fog. Oh, leper colony totally disagree that's not the pinnacle i mean i it's literally about those people coming back and getting revenge on the descendants of i know and i love the fog i think the fog is actually a perfect halloween movie because oh, very much i think one it's of a spooky the ghost story yes one of the crucial ingredients to any good halloween is someone telling spooky ghost stories and in that movie someone tells you spooky ghost stories and to then start. you see it enacted on screen i mean i think poltergeist is way more yes on the nose than the fog but i do love the fog i do agree with you there although is it is it a native american burial ground or is it just a cemetery i thought they just built over an old cemetery oh i thought it was a native american burial ground i would need to rewatch it i haven't watched it recently i've definitely it fits in with that you know milieu of movies from the 70s and 80s about middle class anxiety over property oh yeah buying homes and how they throw everything into their dream home, which turns into be their turns out to be their nightmare. There's a great chapter like on this from Grady Hendrix's book, Paperbacks from Hell. But yeah. Totally, yes. Um, but here they set it up as, I guess, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a Native American demon or just Native American land that white colonists settled. But this also sets up the rule of the creek stream. Oh, yes. That demon, which shows up in different ways in in all three movies. Really dumb way in the third one. A really awful way in the third one and a really funny way in the second one. Yeah. Um, It sort of ties into that one legend about vampires not being able to cross running water and it's the same sort of thing where demons can't cross the running water. Wait, that's a thing with vampires? Yeah. I was not aware. It's an old... Central European myth that running water is a vampire repellent. One of many things. Interesting. But yep, here I am talking about vampires again. As we always seem to come back to. Um, but from that point then, um, they all get start getting a little handsier. Jay tries to pretty much just throw himself onto Judy. I mean, he's literally on top of her and she pushes him off. Yes. And you have to give Judy some credit because even though Judy plays this sort of passive victim type female character, she knows that she doesn't like how pushy Jay is and she tells him no. She stands up for herself, which is unusual for movies from this era where many of these characters would have been more passive. Exactly. Or where they would have been more desperate for people to like them, that they would be willing to compromise more easily. But it's also great. Judy's like, fuck this bullshit. 
And Sal, on top of that, constantly needles and makes fun of Jay for his constant failings on this. Even if Sal yeah. doesn't have the best of intentions, it's funny his running commentary towards Jay and the other characters in the movie. It is. And you do kind of get the sense, uh, despite the joke I made earlier, you kind of get the sense that Sal is pretending to be more of a scumbag than he actually is because he really likes Judy and wants her back. Right. He's playing he's into not expectations. just trying to bang her. He wants to actually be in a relationship with her. Totally. Um, but from this point on, the movie begins to get incredible because this is when we get the famous dance scene with Bauhaus. What? With what I also would argue is a proto YouTube editing style where you see the weird flash flashing jump cuts where yes. in every YouTube video now you see someone when they're talking, they'll be talking, looking, you know, at the camera and then they'll be over slightly pivoted and you get these like weird jump cuts where this movie definitely does that with its editing as she's dancing. Yeah, I, I really love that scene. I mean... As much as I could say, like, wah, I don't like this movie as much as everyone or as much as I should, that scene is great. And, and great choice of Bauhaus song. Yes, it is definitely one of my favorite of the more, like, mainstream Bauhaus songs. But I, mainstream Bauhaus songs? Well, I mean, Bela Lugosi's Dead, I think, is the most popular that everyone knows, partly, partly because of David Bowie. Oh, yes. Which it's funny that you get two goth movies from within a couple of years of each other. The The Hunger is what we're talking about if, if you don't know for some reason. If right. you just were born yesterday. Um, that both have this like iconic kind of dance sequence set to Bauhaus. Because Bauhaus is super danceable. True, but sort Maybe we shouldn't get into this argument right now, but I feel like... You could put different Sisters of Mercy songs in oh, there. True. You could put The Cure. You could put Susie and the Banshees. But I think in that era, like if you were looking for a definitive goth band, even though they vehemently denied it, would never call themselves a goth band, Bauhaus was definitely one of the first ones you would think of when you were thinking of like that music, Yeah, what goth people would listen to. I wish that somebody would make a horror movie with a uh, kick in the eye as the, <laughs> well, <laughs> as the dance scene. It's funny when like you think that there's those two I iconic dance scenes because when Bauhaus first emerged, like when In the Flat Field was first released. Oh, it's so good. It got terrible reviews because pretty much are all idiots. contemporaneously. Um, one reviewer, I think, even said something like something to the effect of they're a hipper Black Sabbath, which oh. you can kind of, I guess, maybe no. hear some kind no. of Black Sabbath influence no. if you really stretch for it. No, you can't. Well, so on the first record, the dub influence is not as pronounced as it would become in like, you know, the later records. I could not disagree more. You I definitely hear it more in like Kick in the Eye in that second record. That first one, it's I'm not going to say it's more... It's less... I don't see any relationship. It's more austere. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Like a way of describing it. It's much less dancey. Yeah. yeah. But... Although you got that jam from this movie. You have this jam. Which we're referring to Stigmata Martyr if you've not seen the movie. Yeah, Stigmata Martyr is definitely one of their most awesome songs. Like it's a great intro to Bauhaus song.
But yeah, I don't know. I The sequence here is great, and I love that it sort of randomly appears. And I cannot wait to talk about the dance sequence in the second movie, which is not Bauhaus. <laughs> well, so one of the things I love about this, too, is Stooge gets many of the best lines, even if some of them tend to be the grossest lines. Um, well, the grossest lines are often the best. Exactly. Here, this is actually pretty tame. He says, it's not the weird ones you have to worry about. Uh, it's not the weird ones you have to watch out for. God, didn't your mom teach you nothing about women? Yeah, that's my favorite line in the whole movie. It's yeah. very validating for myself. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. It, it, I guess it is probably gross in a way, depending on how you want to read the line. But it's also, it's true. Come on. So You don't have to worry about the weird ones. They're always the best. And this isn't just women. This is just in general. The yeah. weirdos are the people you want to know. It makes me think of that line from The Craft. We are the weirdos, mister. <laughs> that line is awful, though. But Stooge turns out to be our first victim. Um, he does not turn out to be a lovable asshole. He literally is kissed to death in this case, which yeah, is, I a... guess, the first sexually transmitted disease in this movie. No, so the first oh, Angela. case is Suzanne when and Suzanne and Angela kiss. But Stooge is the first person to actually die from it. Correct, yes. And... You do have to feel a little bad for him. Like, he's kind of gross. Not really. But, yeah, I guess you're right. You don't have to feel he, bad He's kind him. of like the parody of, like, what you think. He's the parody character of, like, a hardcore dude in the 80s, which oh, which God. is the Star Trek where they have, uh, like, that song, the punk, hardcore punk song. It's in, like, three or four. I forget which. Oh, it's in, it's in, uh... <laughs> It's in the voyage home yeah. because they go to San Francisco for some reason in Star Trek and everyone's going to be sad that you took us down this path. But for some reason in Star Trek, there's this thing where throughout all the different shows and throughout some of the movies, including Star Trek four, they visit earth for various reasons and they always have to go back in time to San Francisco and so in this Who particular one, it's Kirk and Spock on a San Francisco bus with this punk. <laughs> it's, it's a great scene. I forget I love the that song, movie. the song, the fake punk song that they come up with is great. It's like, fuck you. I hate you or mm -hmm. something like that. Those are the lyrics, the type of thing you would expect Stooge to listen to. Definitely. But I mean, he does like Bauhaus, so. Right. Well, so Stooge is also a weird character because he listens to a lot of like all of the weird subcultural music from the era because he 
listens to Bauhaus. He's clearly patterned. His physical appearance is patterned after like a punk dude. Yeah. Once but he's we go, kind of like a meathead punk. Well, so when we go outside on his car, you actually see a sticker for Exodus, which, yeah. you know, Toxic Walt's awesome. So it's weird that he's like representative of every kind of subculture in that era where they yeah. may have been, and I hate to use this word, adjacent to each other. Yes. But, <laughs> I you know, get so excited. there would always always be competition between those groups because there were, they were in that era, at least there wasn't a huge overlap. There was always very like defined genre lines. Yeah. It's a little weird how in something like return of the living dead, and we'll have to do an episode on this. It's goth. Eventually it is goth. And we can get my uncle to come on. Death punk is goth. Yes. But in that movie, the subgenres or the sort of like personality tropes are spread out through different characters. Whereas right. In this one, it's kind of like condensed down into two characters. To him and Angela. Yeah. yeah. He's, I guess, like goth leaning, goth curious. He's goth curious. That's what our podcast should be called. Goth curious. <laughs> so we get outside. Um, Helen is hiding in the car, but it doesn't really. Oh, Roger's hiding in the car, sorry. And this is where we discover our second victim, Helen, who literally just falls out of the fucking sky. Yeah, it's great. And unfortunately, Roger has to run away yet again because that's what his character does. And we then return to Jay's story arc where his horniness meets Suzanne's horniness. Yes. In one of the most iconic scenes in the movie. Which grosses me out. What, the lipstick? Yeah. It's a great one. I don't know why, but for some reason, uh, nipple scenes weird me out a little bit. Really? Like the nipple slicing in, I mean, it's in so many Takashi Miike movies. Right. Uh, but things like Ichi the Killer, it's, I don't, I'm not squeamish, so I don't have a real problem with it, but it's a little gross. It's very well done. And I do think there is some good gore in this movie that you definitely see more of in part two. Well, what's weird in the movie is it feels like at a certain point their budget just stopped because the demons, yes. up to like three fourths <laughs> of the way through the movie, the demons keep getting cooler and cooler. And then you get like Sal who just gets like bags under his eyes and a stick out of his chest. It's because he's a 2020 coronavirus demon. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> you but just look real tired. In the sex scene, um, Suzanne turns into a demon in the middle of sex and gouges out Jay's eyes, you know, Which fulfilling. pretty awesome. What should happen to someone like Jay in real life? Sure, but it definitely, I think, has some slasher vibes where the hornier people are, the worse the outcome the is yeah. for them. Well... <laughs> So speaking of that, our next death is Max and his girlfriend who are fucking in a casket. Yes, I love them. And Stooge just runs up. Um, before this happens, uh, Max's girlfriend says, Max, I don't bend that way. But she does. And she does. Because Stooge <laughs> closes, literally like bends her in half and closes the casket repeatedly on Max's arm. It's a great scene, but also can't you just let them bang in the coffin in peace? It's Halloween. Uh, I mean, if you're a demon, I don't think you're too worried about paying, you know, respect to people's, or you know, just horniness. like wait till they're done. You could, but it felt like Stooge was not going to get any. So he wasn't going to let anybody else get any. That's a fair assessment. And this is where we begin to see that Sal is a stand up dude because he doesn't take advantage of Suzanne when she's clearly kind of fucked up. I mean, and then he also begins, you know, standing up for Judy. I do think also throughout all three films, there's this general sense of 
kind of disgust for the female characters who are too sexual. It's like it creeps. Yeah. And I think you see that here with Suzanne where it creeps people out, even from the beginning of the movie before the demons take hold. Interesting. Aside. I definitely noticed that this time around, but I think aside from Jay, there are multiple characters who kind of tell Suzanne that she needs to calm down and like (laughs) keep it in her pants. Yeah, I mean, I think Sal even says, like, you're fucked up or something and walks away. Yeah, and that also happens in sort of more exaggerated ways in the second and third movies where people are like, okay, we're all horny, but you're taking it too far. Like, you need to chill. But this is really where the movie kicks into high gear because characters just start getting killed left and right. Um, There is um, the couple in the casket. From there, we then get Sal, who sacrifices himself for Judy. Literally falling off a building and getting, you know, R.I.P. Sal, uh, like a stake through the stomach. Yeah. They then cut to, you know, they have to name him Romero because. Of course. We get his tombstone and what is a good uh, visual gag. Yeah, that's a fun one. And that leaves us with our final two, Judy and Roger, who will survive. To be possessed another day. I suppose. (laughs) I just meant more who will survive in the end because typically in a movie like this it's usually just one character who gets out and sure. typically it's judy the final girl yeah and this movie sort of plays into that but the the actual final scene is just the best right so to escape there so i guess we missed the part earlier when roger was looking around the proximity of the building and he only found a brick wall and it looks like there's yes. no more gate So to climb out, uh, to get out, they have to climb out and they have to climb up barbed wire. So Roger like just scoots the hell up, whereas Judy has some trouble getting up the wall. And here is where you think Roger is again going to leave her to die. And all of the demons finally come out in one scene together and start grabbing her. But Roger, being the stand up dude that he really is, saves her. Finally saves her. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's a fun scene, though. It's sort of like you... On some level, if you've seen enough horror movies, you know there's no way that they're going to let the final girl die if there's somebody alive to help her. Right. And this, again, kind of subverts the idea that Roger, the sole black character in the movie, is not going to live. He ultimately ends up being the hero of the movie. He saves her. It's refreshing. Which would have been extremely unusual for that era where black characters were typically the first ones killed. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Friday the 13th franchise, there's so many cases, or even the later Halloween movies. It's like, are you black in this movie? Best of luck to you. Unfortunately, the third movie in this reverses that, but at least in this movie. But the third movie is the worst, which we'll discuss later. So at least in this movie, Roger and Judy escape to live again, to go back to Hull House, to to do whatever. Crazy to walk past some crazy ass old people, and that's where we get the wraparound gag, which is one of my favorite jokes in Mine any horror too. movie from that era. So, the old man we saw at the beginning of the movie, he had those uh, razor blades and he put them in apples. Unfortunately, children just weren't coming out this year, according to his wife. So, the gag is that his wife used all the apples full of razor blades to make pie. He eats the pie, the apples come out of his throat, which is really implausible because I don't know if you guys have ever made a pie from scratch, but you have to chop the apples. Like, razor blades would not get past you. No. Unless you do, like, some sort of 
Like there is a variation where you do a baked apple wrapped in pie dough. And so the whole apple is cooked. So that, but, but that's not but what he would have had have to have here. swallowed the slice whole. Like what, like the scoop that he was eating, he would have had to have swallowed it's it whole. It's still a good gag. Even, it's a great even gag. Even though it's super implausible. Yeah. Great end to a movie. Great end to pretty much any movie in that era. One of the best. Agreed. So this movie is goth and Angela is goth. And I'm going to say it right here. She does dance. She dances to Bauhaus. In a black lace dress. She's got the black gown. She does throw a party in a haunted, abandoned funeral home. She's all kinds of spooky. People call her, you know, weirdo. They say this is her, uh, Halloween is for Christmas. She is goth and I will hear nothing else. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to give you this one. Don't talk. Just listen. Son, there is no hope, only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network. So we were doing Night of the Demons. We did Night of the Demons. And now we are on to Night of the Demons 2 and Night of the Demons 3. And it's not that like, so I respect the work that was put into it. It's just, it's not a good movie. I don't like anything about it, but we're not there. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about three first. We can very briefly talk about three because we We don't really want to go into it. it. Yeah. We both hated three. So I had actually, I had seen three probably when it first came out, if not when it first came out, like, so the movie came out in 97. I believe I probably would have watched it like 98, 99, maybe 2000. It was a movie that would always play at like 3am on Cinemax. And I would always catch the ending until I finally saw it. Um, it, even then I was just like, Oh, Come on. Yeah, it's funny because two, which we'll talk about in a minute. So I had never seen two or three. Two was so good that I was like really excited to watch three. Two I'm mixed on. Which was a mistake. It's like on one hand, two and three both have way more nudity, way more, way more sex, and also a lot more gore but three it's like i don't know what the fuck they were thinking with this plot it's basically like these horny teenagers yet again who are all actually 30 year olds pick up these two girls who are on their way to a halloween dance and offer to give them a ride and they stop at a convenience store and somehow get caught in a shootout so this movie is what i like to call it makes no sense quinn and tarantino the sov horror movie because this (laughs) This movie does what every late 90s, mid to late 90s indie Post crime film, Pulse, kind of bullshit, Pulp Fiction, yeah. like Suicide Kings, all of those really bad Tarantino knockoffs. And Suicide Kings is a fucking awful movie. Try and rewatch that. But no. this does that thing where, you know, it has to have like hip language and characters have to get stuck in shootouts. You know, they have to be pointing guns at each other. There has to be some kind of cross up that yeah. causes some kind of like tragic, you know, chain of events. The characters, um, Virgil, I think, is the main asshole in the movie. 
he and his girlfriend are, I'm pretty sure, patterned after Mickey and Mallory. Oh, I was just going to say there are totally intentional natural born killer vibes from these two idiots who like don't belong in this film. Right. So it, it, so Joe Augustine wrote all three of these movies. He didn't direct any of them. The third one, I don't know. I think his name was like Jimmy Kaufman or something. Yeah, I don't know. But basically Joe, uh, Joe Augustine watched a lot of Tarantino before this binged, you know, Pulp Fiction a bunch of times, but specifically Reservoir Dogs because it uses part of the plot of Reservoir Dogs because one of the characters gets shot it and does. they have to carry him around. Yes, and basically in the shootout, their van, the gas tank of their van is shot and somehow so they, end up they at Hull can House. drive around for a while until they run out of gas. They go to Hull House and it's the same sort of deal where everybody tries to bang and then they get possessed. And then this, these like keystone cops type dudes show up and it's, it's just, there's nothing good about it. And it's clear that they didn't really have money to work with on this one. So like the house isn't even the same one. They have to use inserts from the first two movies. Uh, specifically, there's a scene when we're introduced to Angela where they have uh, cut away to a scene from the first movie where she's floating through the hallway, chasing Sal and Judy um, and then they cut it's to sad. the house that they're in and it's clearly just someone's mansion. It's sad. But then they also add elements to the property of the house where like there's a barn and there were things that were not in either of the first two movies. Yeah. It like blatantly looks different. The really the only similarities aside from that, like teenagers go to whole house and get possessed plot is the stuff that we were talking about earlier with all of the female sexual jealousy and really horny girls spreading demonic possession, that's also in this. Yes. And the thing that I think is the craziest is that Angela, as a character, shows up in all three movies. Right. And she is sort of like the caretaker of the, the demonic caretaker of the house in two and three. Right. And it's played by the same actress from one Amelia Kincaid. Yeah. Who I think you can understand the dance sequences in the first, there's really no similar dance sequence in the third movie, but sort of she, she tries to seduce the nerd with the gun and then, and she, then she gives she his sucks gun off a, the gun. Yeah. She gives his gun a blow job and somehow sucks the bullets out. It's, well, so, Oh. It's supposed to be a payoff to a joke where, like, she's hitting on him and he's like, only if you can suck a golf ball through 10 miles of what, like... Of garden hose or something. So she literally sucks the bullets out of his gun and he gets turned on because, you know, that's what I would do if I saw a woman suck bullets out of a gun. I mean, I would be deeply confused. I, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't be impressed. I would be impressed, but not turned on. Well, so one of the things that they do in 2 and 3 that's also... It's ridiculous. weird is that Angela's appearance changed dra changes drastically where she becomes like, you know, a hot mom in the second one and they just stick with it in the third one. Well, because I don't want to say she's like dramatically aged, but there wasn't know, a big the, difference between. Well, the first movie is 88, 88 and 94. Yeah, there's 88, 94 and 97. And but she has the look from in three that she sort of does in two in yes. the beginning where she's aged kind of dramatically and she's dropped the goth from her character sort of she's still kind of goth i think especially in the second one i but guess she has an interesting life story where like she has amelia a, kincaid yeah so please go on she's a dancer she was in a bunch of music videos like she's apparently in a scorpions video oh, which one she i actually don't know i couldn't find 
the title earlier, but we'll we'll have to look more. I'm super fascinated by that because I just listened to the Wind of Change podcast. Oh man. They are not CIA assets, goddammit. <laughs> the Scorpions are one of the best metal bands of the 80s. Yeah, and one of the best West Whoa, 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 whoa. One of the best metal bands of the 80s? You're gonna have to get out of my house. They're great. The Scorpion's best work is the 70s. Oh, which you're a Virgin think, Killer fan? Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm not a fan of like a lot of 70s hard rock. I I am a fan of lots of 80s metal. That's why I prefer the 80s period for them. I mean, they sort of tie into that new wave of British heavy metal stuff, which I know I love more than you. Well, no, I actually love it. I just love it as it gets more into the early 80s rather than the beginnings of it where they're more traditional hard rock. Sure. And the Scorpion, so I will say the Scorpion's, cover art hypnosis the designs that they were doing for them in that era were amazing yeah because it's hypnosis right which at some point we're gonna have to talk about we're gonna have to have an episode where we could talk about coil just coil yeah i mean we're gonna have an all coil episode and talk about their music videos and talk about the hypnosis artwork well and the hellraiser soundtrack exactly yeah or the one that they didn't use but we've talked enough about three Let's just get to two because two is actually pretty yeah, fun. Yeah, but wait, wait, wait. So after Amelia... No one really cares about the ending. Oh, you mean about Amelia? Amelia's oh, life. Sorry, I thought you meant the Not ending Not Angela. So yeah. Amelia, who plays Angela, was a dancer. She's in a bunch of music videos. She's in a couple movies. She's in Breaking 2 in an uncredited <laughs> role. Electric Boogaloo. Exactly. Um, she sort of retires from dancing and acting and goes on to become a professional pet psychic and apparently got invited to Buckingham Palace to talk to some horses. Hell yeah. She's <laughs> my new hero. I don't know if this is true. Amelia, or if, if you're just... out there, I love you. Yeah, come talk to my dog who's very grumpy right now. Speaking of dancers, let's go to part two where there is also another dancer and we can go into the weird backstory of one of the other characters from that movie as well. Oh man, yeah, part two I expected to hate and wound up loving it. There's a base level for me with Brian Trenchard Smith where even if I'm not a fan of the movie, it's still enjoyable. His movies are so fun and for those of you not really that familiar with him, he mostly does kind of... Schlock? Yeah, mostly Turkey like... Turkey Shoot being the most notable one that pe- most people know. It's sort of like full moon level stuff where it's... it can, Hyper parody, hyper satire. Yes, Characters but, are very exaggerated. The comedy is very like lowbrow. It is, and I love it. But he, if you follow him on social media, he is a very, very sweet man. Yeah. And 90% of what he posts <laughs> are videos of the deer in the woods around his house. And I noticed... That at the very, very end, the last thing in the credits of Night of the Demons 2 is there's this disclaimer that no animals were harmed in the making of his film. And he's no, a very sweet person. No bugs were harmed. Yeah. It's like he was like, they're CGI bugs, they're fake bugs. He, like he goes into it. There's like a whole paragraph there at the end. It's like, oh, <laughs> this is one of your movies, isn't it? So he directs this movie. It definitely. The comedy in this movie has a different approach than from the first movie where it feels closer to something like Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Yes, it's it's sort of like Evil Dead 2. Yeah, it, it has that same hyper exaggerated slapstick humor. Whereas the first one, it's not that it didn't have it. It's just it's more it's it also, a situational comedy. It's a little bit meaner. I mean, you oh, basically yeah. so instead of just being set at a regular high school, it's like set at this kind of school for troubled kids Christian that's run school. by a priest and a nun. 
Saint Gloria, uh, not Saint Gloria, uh, Sister Gloria. Sister Gloria, Saint Gloria by the end of the movie. And she's so amazing. Uh, <laughs> she is well worth watching the movie for. Yeah, she's uh, she's a semi. I forget what her name is. She's a semi well known actress. She's been in a bunch of stuff, but the way it's set up is we're introduced to a number of characters in the Christian Reform School. Um, Angela's sister, who we never heard about in the first movie, but apparently is a thing, um, named Melissa, but who is known as Mouse, attends the school. And Her- she she reminds me so much of. Uh, Every nineties, you know, manic pixie dream girl. No, so Mouse reminds me actually of um, if you watch. I forget what the actress's name is, and I'm sure this is going to make people mad. But if you watch Halloween four and five, oh, the yeah. little girl she wears that Danielle like, Harris. Yes, Danielle yeah. Harris. When in Halloween five, when she's a little bit older, and she wears that like Bob. Is that what it's called? Like she has it. Like it's like curled on the ends. Yeah, sure I mean, it, it is. is. It's a Bob hairstyle, but what I mean is Danielle Harris wears this Halloween costume. Oh, I and know what Mouse you're about. wears almost exactly the same costume. So it's Jennifer Rhodes who plays Sister Gloria, and yeah, she's she, been in a ton of stuff. Yeah, she's she's, a, in, she's a legitimately funny actress. She's in Heather's. She's in a ton of television, but she is one of those people who just is really, really recognizable, and she's had a crazy prolific career, but she's so good in it because much like what you were saying about part one, I feel like there are characters who are established in part two who wind up going against type. Right. And sister Gloria is definitely one of those because for the first half of the movie, she's evil. Yeah. She seems like this totally repressive asshole, but then she becomes the hero of the movie. Right. <laughs> but, so good. So let's let's explain why Mouse is in the Christian Reform School. So she's Angela's sister, and her obviously parents committed suicide. Yeah, obviously something fucked up happened in that family. No one knows what happened to Angela. No one knows she's turned into a demon. But one Halloween, her parents get a card covered in bugs and gross shit. But they swear it's Angela's handwriting on the card, and they commit suicide. So Mouse is obviously fucked up. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, and she ends up in the worst possible place because this is Heather's mean girls, whatever movie you want to reference, but like at a Christian reform school. Yeah. It does have very kind of like clueless vibes right? where the girls are even nastier than the girls in the first movie. And they're like all trying to fuck each other's boyfriends. And well, speaking of well-known actresses, um, Christine Taylor is one of the actresses from Hey Dude, um, Zoolander, yeah, bunch of movies. I know people think of her as being from uh, as being from Zoolander and being married to Ben Stiller, but I cannot look at her and not think of Hey Dude. Well, yeah, so that's why I <laughs> referenced I'm him. I'm sure shows my age. I know people, so like, unfortunately, when people talk about, you know, the partners of famous actors, typically... That's how they get to find female actresses. Well, actresses in general. They're always defined as like, oh, that's Ben Stiller's wife. So I tried not to make a point of saying that, but unfortunately that's kind of what her reputation is. She's well, great on I Hey think, Dude, though. I think it's because she's in a lot of his movies. That's also part of it is right. like they work together a lot. Yeah, people will look out for their partners regardless. But she's actually very good as one of, you know, the very bitchy mean girls in this movie. 
She's, um, she's great, to be, <laughs> to be honest. Well, yeah. So one of the things you get in this movie that's kind of funny is you get this weird cast of characters even more exaggerated than in the first one. You get the Mean Girls. You get the douchebag, you know, jocks. And then you get Perry, the demonologist in training. Who is so concerned that somebody has borrowed one of his demonology books and is like, what is going to happen? But he seems <laughs> like, so funny. initially he seems like he's going to be set up to be the heroic character. And then throughout the movie, he's just this hysterical, like ranting maniac. It's amazing. And it really, like before he seems like he's going to be heroic, you're like, oh, this kid's obsessed with demonology. He's going to instigate some shit at Hull House. Right. But of course it's not him. It's the no. super slutty girl. <laughs> so why don't we bring up the super slutty girl, Shirley? Who I love. She's, <laughs> she's wonderful. She's an interesting character because she comes to the reform school looking like she's 36. She really is not in high school. And <laughs> she is out to fuck anything that moves. And or at least manipulate people into thinking she will fuck them to get yes, what she wants. But the dude that she really wants to fuck is the like older metalhead dude. Which so is, <laughs> which is I, I want to bring something up. This is an inside joke that no one is going to get except Sam. But do you think he's cousin Greg? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shout out to our uh, yeah, good we, friend, Greg. We love you, Greg. This character is a dead ringer for him. Sideburns and all. So... Shirley um, sets things in motion by deciding instead of going to the... Well, so things start to get set in motion because... They get in trouble. Well, because Shirley gets handsy with one of the dude characters and... Kingsnake. Yes, and she gets in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Also, girls, if you're listening to this, anyone who has a nickname like Kingsnake, it usually means the opposite. So anyone who gives themselves the nickname Kingsnake. Yes. Yes. She Um, gets handsy with them and sister Gloria decides they are banned from the Christmas dance, uh, the Halloween dance. She decides that they're all banned, which allow uh, sort of works in Shirley's favor. And she convinces them all to go. She kind of like kidnaps them all or doesn't kidnap them. She kidnaps mouse. She kidnaps mouse and she manipulates the rest of them without knowing into going to whole house where they're going to throw a party and there's going to, they plan to sacrifice a cat. Well, <laughs> so insane. this is where earlier when I was like, there's a sacrifice, you know, with goths, metalheads, there's always got to be a sacrifice. They subvert that because it turns out the knife is actually not real. Yeah. But the way we get there is the cat escapes. So they decide to sacrifice spouse because if not a cat, why not a mouse? Sister. And she's yes. Angela's sister. But she's a little whiny bitch. Well, so she has lots of trauma, which she is working through. I think it's understandable if she doesn't want to go to the house where her sister may have died and killed lots of people. Sure, but she's a whiny bitch for the whole freaking movie. Yeah, she's cute. So disagree. They stage a fake sacrifice. One of the characters, I think it's King Snake. I forget what his name is. When you call yourself King Snake, sorry, that's how I'm going to define you. Yeah. He tries to rescue her, but he gets stabbed. Turns out it's a fake knife. Because they were just trying to prank everybody because, you know, they're just juvenile assholes. And it's Halloween. Even though Cousin Greg is like 40 and hanging out with teenagers. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Greg. (laughs) But I do want to bring up my favorite character in the movie, Z-Boy. Who looks like a character out of The Crow. He basically is like (laughs) Skank. You know, at some point expecting him to start yelling, fire it up fire it Me up too he's and even got the really bad like long hair undercut yep, that was popular among metalheads in the 90s hair. um 
he is just ridiculous as hell. And he turns into the first victim, basically. Yeah. And I feel and he also gets like raped by Angela. Well, yeah. So that's a weird one. He uh, she forces a kiss on him because kisses are lethal. And then he's sort of into it as they're doing whatever. I'm not sure how you would define it. I demon bang. Demon bang. Yeah. (laughs) That's the technical term. So he's technically the first victim, but not the most creative of victims, which we will get to in a moment. No. Get to in a moment. But it goes in such an, and I mean, we don't need to talk about it that long, but I feel like it goes in such an interesting direction because they start out at the house and then they leave and they wind up leaving but it's clever how they get the demons out of the house because the one idiot girl takes a tube of lipstick the tube of lipstick yep the tube of lipstick that went through Linnea's nipple and that gets Angela out of the house yeah which they I feel like there's a touch of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street effects. Well, so yeah, when we get which to is the, awesome. When we get to the scene where they're in the bathroom, where I mentioned earlier, Angela and Shirley kiss to get that to occur. Shirley has to use lipstick, and the lipstick, you know, if you've ever seen lipstick, it's a it, it depending on the color you're looking at, especially red, it can be kind of you know phallic looking, right? All lipstick is phallic looking. I mean, this more so <laughs> because of like the you know the weird red shade that they use, but. Like 90%. It looks like a throbbing penis. 90, I would say 98% of lipstick is some shade of red or pink. So all of it. So she uses it and it's a scene that sort of calls out Evil Dead because of the tree. Yeah. But also the effects, you're right. It's more something out of Nightmare on on Elm Street. And they do some really great, I I feel like we shouldn't spoil it and we should try to encourage people to actually watch. Right. That's why I'm describing specifically what happens to Shirley because- you should see it. Yeah. it's a, So it's a great play on the lipstick gag from the first one. And there's a play on the dance scene, which yes. as soon as I realized what was happening, I lost my shit. So they go back. So basically, they're freaked out. They leave Whole House. The, the ones who have survived so far anyway. Leave Whole House, not totally realizing that there's a demon and that some of them are possessed and that this lipstick is possessed. They go back to the Halloween party and Sister Gloria has found out that they went to Hull House. So because it, Perry is a snitch. Because Perry is a little snitch. And they sort of switch places. Like yeah. she leaves and that's why they can show up at the dance. Yes. She leaves to prepare. And so... Shirley becomes infected via the kiss and she goes back to the party. And Angela is there. Because and Sister Gloria and Angela have, you know, a stare off. Right. A but battle of the, I don't know what you would call it. I don't know what you would call it either. But the best part is at the party, instead of dancing to goth music. It's death metal. Angela dances to fucking Morbid Angel. Yeah. And I was so excited. So it's uh, it's from their, I think, third album, Covenant. I love Morbid Angel. It's but a ridiculous scene. I can't think of anyone dancing like that <laughs> to Morbid Angel ever. Well, it happened. It and Angela happened did the it. Night of the Demons too. Both Angela and Shirley. And who, it's a great scene. Right. Now, speaking of dancers, the actress who played Shirley was also a dancer, apparently. Um, her acting name was Zoe Trilling. Um, I'm not sure what her real name was, but she apparently gave up acting and 
developed like a cult audience based around this and her appearance in Toby Hooper, coming back around to him, Night Terrors. Oh, okay. Um, but she decided to like get out of acting completely. And now like there are weirdos on the internet, horror fans as they do decide to try and stalk these people. So if you want to, you know, take a Don't look. Don't stalk anyone. No, if you want to take a look into like the mental illnesses among many horror fans around, you know, their weird infatuation, the parasocial relationships they develop with women they do not know, look into the fans of Zoe Drillon. Yeah, I mean, some of you guys need to chill. That's all I'm going to say about that. Right. But she's also a dancer and she puts her skills on display. Oh, she's great. She's yeah. so funny. And Cousin Greg gets the hand. Oh. So <laughs> the dude, his name is actually Rick. Um, there's a joke throughout the movie about um, a trick or treat or a sticky treat. And he walks up to her and she's like, you want your sticky treat? And her tits contort into a demon and basically melt his hand. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It is ridiculous. And the effects are actually pretty good. There are some great effects in this one. I, I think the effects are probably better than in the first one. It they're, shot, they're more consistent. Right. It's shot like an SOV horror movie uh, because I don't know if this ever played in a the theater, but um, the way it actually looks like there's the no way this is SOV. This is definitely shot on film. It was shot on film. It looks yeah. like it was shot on video, like the way the lighting is staged and a lot of that is set up, but the actual effects look top notch. So I will give it credit for that. Yeah. I mean, it's so much fun. I think if you go in expecting nothing and you want something along the lines of evil dead Two, it totally delivers. You will definitely get that. Especially um, if you like morbid angel and you want to watch some babes dance to morbid <laughs> angel. This is also the movie for you. Or if you want to see some nun foo, because this is what we get next. This is why I compared Hell it to dead yes. alive because sister Gloria, the resident crank is proven she right. She does kick ass for the Lord. She kicks ass for the Lord. She uh, suits up in her habit and you know, Begins using in like a special habit, a rosary <laughs> a special like war begins habit. using a rosary like nunchucks. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. And she goes to war. They all go back to Hull House because Angela kidnaps Mouse. She gets kidnapped again, and they have to rescue Mouse. Mouse is such a pain in the ass. Yeah, I don't know. She's a very passive character until you know the very end, but that's intentional. So again, I'll give Joe Augustine credit here. Yeah, I just I really can't believe how much I liked too and. I don't necessarily know that people are going to agree with me and will like it more than the first one, but it's just so much fun. Well, you get like lots of weird characters who they get good payoffs. Father Bob, the guy who's in control of the reform school, he denies the fact that demons are real the entire movie. Perry, he yeah. hates Perry. But ultimately, the scene where he gets it, it's like the movie's most black metal moment where, you know, he's literally just getting stabbed to death by a fucking demon. Yep, it's pretty awesome. It's, it is funny that they do have these religious characters who go very much against type in a lot of ways. Well, Sister Gloria sort of goes to type, but goes so far but into type. But she becomes the hero. Yeah, which, which is there weird. There are There's many like a movies weird... that have a nun hero. Although, did you ever watch... Isn't all nunsploitation about heroic nuns? Heroic sexy nuns. <laughs> the new interpretation of the devils. Yes. Uh, heroic sexy nuns. Sorry, what were you saying? Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess. It's like they topple this giant statue of Christ and bang it in, in the devils. Oh, I Not, you were trying to think of a heroic nun movie. No, no, no. I, I wasn't actually, but I was thinking about nuns in this context. Did you ever see that 
I want to say it's from 2000, 2001, that movie, The, the Convent. Convent. I'm not a fan. It it's is, another movie that felt like it was trying to do, you know, what these movies were yes. doing, just not as well. Yeah, it's like a total ripoff Has a, um, of Night of the Demons. It could be considered a goth movie, depending on how you look at it. Well, the main character is goth. That's why I was saying it. Yes. And so I feel like we at least have to mention it on the show. But Night of the Demons 2 does a much better version of what the convent is trying to do. Well, so Sister Gloria, who... And doesn't have annoying black light paint, which is the worst, most 2000s shit ever. Right. So Sister Gloria ultimately becomes the hero of the movie because the finale is Sister Gloria versus Angela, basically. A satanic, snake-like Angela. I'm not quite sure I understand that. It's so Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. And they sort of play play into it in the third movie where they call back... um, the snake aspect where one character's hand turns into a snake and she pleasures yeah. herself with it. But here it's just arbitrarily Angela turns into a snake demon and there yep. is like a big cross that gets affixed onto her because they light kills her. This is, I think the first movie where they establish that light yeah, is bad. Th- you can't pay too much attention to those rules. Yeah. So there's kind of like vampire rules. There's demon rules. There's all kinds of different rules coalescing in the end of this movie that doesn't really make sense, but is entertaining. Yeah, but like, how can you expect Night of the Demons 2 to make sense? I don't think Brian Trenchard Smith really cared about making sense. As long as no bugs were harmed in the making of that film, he did not care. And good for him. Bless his heart. He is a sweet, sweet man. All right, Josh, we got to do this ad. We got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. <sighs> All right. We're underachieving overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and Adventure by the Light of the Silver Screen. Is non-judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitist, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. So that was Night of the Demons and Night of the Demons 2 and Night of the Demons 3. So... Can we briefly talk about our favorite Halloween movies since this is our special <laughs> Halloween episode? There are way too many because I'm going through a list right now and it looks like all of the best movies are set on Halloween or are about Halloween. Speaking of the movie Halloween 3, that being one of them. Yep, I, that's definitely high on my list. I don't know. I I think it's a pretty common thing among horror movie fans to be kind of frustrated how normal people or what have you want to watch horror movies on Halloween. Whereas when you watch, or at least for Halloween season, and it's like when you watch them all year round, you tend to, I think, have more specific tastes when Halloween shows up. I only want to watch Jacques Tati films on Halloween. (laughs) But that's me. He's great. (laughs) You're a dirty liar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, Halloween movies are great. I watch them year round, as Ministry would say. Every day is Halloween. Oh, <laughs> play a little. Yeah, I mean, I have so many favorite movies set during Halloween or about Halloween that involve Halloween. It's hard to pick just a few. Um, most prominently, Ghost Watch, which I think is not just a good movie, but also one of the probably like most inventive of probably the last 30 or 40 years with the way it actually scared the hell out of a country of people. I still have never seen it. What the hell is wrong with you? I don't know. 
I actually uh, mention it briefly in a chapter for a book I contributed like a year ago to something that I don't even know if it's in progress yet or whatever, but like it's the best example of what, you know, found footage, horror. Oh, I'm contributing a chapter to that too. I just haven't written it yet. Yeah, so <laughs> my, my, mine has been written. Um, I'm just You're waiting for revisions. You're more responsible than I am. You know, I wasn't sure what was going on with that, but it's, uh, I don't, men- I, I mentioned it very briefly because it's not what I'm writing about, but I wanted to find a way to work it in. Um, Ghost Watch is just an amazing, amazing movie. Um, it was made by the BBC in the early 90s, and it essentially did for England what War of the Worlds did here in the United States, the radio play that everyone talks about from Orson Welles. Yeah. A lot of people thought England was descending into, you know, madness. They were true. I mean, they were right. It just would take another 20 years for England to lose its fucking mind, but... Sure, I mean, Thatcher. Oh, I meant actually, like, Brexit think, and everything since then. I think then. they lost their mind when, when Thatcher came around. I mean, yeah, true. But um, Ghostwatch is awesome. It's basically a fake um, Halloween special where some ghost uh, paranormal investigators, ghost hunters, are going into a house. And it turns out the house may be real. Um, the Antfield haunting is what it was based on. It was a big tabloid story in the British tabloids in the early, early 80s. So they used that as the setup and went from there. Uh, that movie actually inspired another one of my favorite Halloween movies, who I want to shout out right now, Chris LaMartina, um, who, friend of the pod, um, or at least my friend personally, who did the WNUF Halloween special. It's funny that you bring him up because I am, so two of my very good friends who love Halloween, uh, shout out to Chuck and Chelsea, were supposed to be married on Halloween which they can't because of quarantine. But Sorry, Chuck and Chelsea. Chris's, I, I'm in their wedding, and Chris's wife is also in their wedding. So right. The, yes, um, they are a friend of the podcast. Aurora Gorealis is the name of her character, her her host character, correct? Yes. So shout out to Chris and Aurora. Um, WNUF is awesome. I think it's one of the best Halloween movies of the last, like, 15, 20 years. It sets up like it's a found footage horror movie of uh, broadcast from a TV show, another fake Halloween special of Evening News. Um Frank Stewart is ostensibly the host, and he is taking us on a guided tour with Warren surrogates who are investigating this house where murders happened. Not quite actually what happened, or at least the murders did happen, but the house isn't haunted. It's a lot of fun. Um, The commercials are probably the best part. It's goofy as hell. I've played it for a crowd of people. It killed. Uh, Another recommendation. The third one I want to shout out is not a found footage horror movie and doesn't attempt to be (laughs) um halloween specials for tv movies are pretty normal but the midnight hour is one that doesn't get enough it's so good there's a goth like goth adjacent connection in the movie because they play a smith song i'll allow it two-thirds of the way through regardless of what you feel about morrissey the smiths are fine um and they use house now so gothish how soon is now is a goth song but counts it's a TV movie that was made in the 80s. It has a weird 50s nostalgia to it. It's so good. It's like a weird Halloween musical with all kinds of like horror movie tropes thrown in a blender. Right. It has Jordy. Oh, it Star does. Trek. I forgot. He plays the boyfriend in the movie he of sure the does. main witch, who is also a vampire because witches are vampires and has that Barbara Steele I mean, kind of thing going on. If there's a witch and a vampire in it, it's automatically goth. Right. Um, but the basic idea is, you know, there's this town that was part of the Salem witch trials and that comes back and sets the town 
crazy. Zombies rise from the grave, witches appear, vampires are there. Um, has one of the best, you know, mid-movie dance sequences I have ever seen with a uh, song that was written specifically for the movie that sounds like a knockoff of Thriller. Everything about it's wonderful, and I have to watch it every year. Yeah, it's really great. Um, I think I probably have mentioned this before, but I do these monthly marathons at my house that we usually pick a theme, and then we try to watch a bunch of movies in that theme. And this year I think we're trying to do like Halloween special musicals if we can't find anything to do on Halloween. and that Paul will, Lind. Well, Paul Lind and definitely Midnight Hour. Yes, they're both. One of them is good and one of them is Fun. something. <laughs> something. That's a word for Paul Lind's Halloween special. I highly recommend it. But what are your other favorite Halloween movies? So I definitely, you know, we've talked about Halloween 3, which is something that I try to watch every year. Um I try to do this weird combination of nostalgia where I watch movies that I watched as a kid, things like Disney's Halloween treat, which was this like cartoon compilation, uh, the worst witch, Ernest scared, stupid shit like that. <laughs> I love Ernest scared, stupid. It's great. Um, but my focus is usually on, like I said earlier, watching horror movies that I haven't seen yet. So not many new ones because I hate a lot of them, but I, I still, some I'll good still new try. Yeah. But you're not a fan of trick or treat. The recent one. I hate the recent one, <laughs> <laughs> but that actually brings me to two of my three Halloween movie suggestions. Oh, I know so, one, one of them at least now based on that, you know, two of them now based on that. Oh, okay. But Oh, yeah. One of the things that I really like to do is watch movies set on Halloween yeah. or at Halloween parties. Agreed. Um, and so there's definitely Trick or Treats, which I mentioned earlier is... What an opening. Oh, my God. What an it, opening. So we saw it a couple of years ago because Exhumed Films used to do this 24-hour marathon on Halloween. Last year was going to be their last one because the location closed, like the theater was sold. And then the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hit, so there won't be one this year unless we have one at my house. Well, but It's funny you bring that up because I actually saw a Night of the Demons introduced by Joe Augustine at least at like two or three different Exhum screenings, one of which was a horror well, and they did this really, really one of my favorite like days of programming they've ever done. It was called Class of 1988. Oh, right. And they showed five or six movies. It was like an all day thing. Yeah. It wasn't 24 hours. And he but, was there again for that. Yeah. They they showed the Blob remake, Night of the Demons, Waxworks, uh, Slime City. It was like the best day ever. Oh, it was awesome. Um, shout out to Exhumed. Yeah. Shout out to Exhumed. Hopefully they can find a new space and come back and Hopefully they build the space. Yes. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more when it happens, but, or when it opens, right. but so a couple of years ago, they showed this 1979, I think it is movie called trick or treats that I had never seen or heard of before. And it showed, I want to say it like the 1am slot or some like Perfect crazy time, time when we were, really tired and it is so fucking batshit crazy you've got the weird meatloaf looking guy who's in every movie i know he's also in wacko which is another great halloween movie that i didn't see too i think he's in like uh black dog was that that's actually the meatloaf movie 
Yes. Um, but he looks a lot like Meatloaf. And when you see he him, does. you're like, oh, that guy's Meatloaf. He's but great. He's not. But also the log lady is in it. Oh, wait, really? Yeah, she's the nurse who gets her uniform stolen by oh, the dude who looks right. like Meatloaf. Holy shit. <laughs> so I don't want to say too much about trick or treats because it's so insane, but it more <laughs> or less is about. Also, there's a fucking incredible David Carradine cameo as the <laughs> he's so sleepy. Cameo, he just kind of wanders in and out of the movie like he does stoned, like, high, he, drunk, he reminds some combination me thereof. Of Michael Moriarty in Cue the Winged Serpent, how he just seems to not know what's going on and is just sort of like there. Doing his own thing. Yes. And I know they work together, so I, I'm sure it, it was an intentional nod. But it's, what an opening. It's like basically this woman has her husband committed and years later on Halloween, she gets a babysitter to watch her son who is an aspiring magician and special effects artist, but he's this like super fucked up kid. The most like obnoxious child you will but, ever meet. But he's incredible. You actually want him to die. <laughs> you do. You, you really wish that he would just die, but so the babysitter is watching him and the husband breaks out of the asylum and all Meatloaf of this breaks happens. out of the asylum. Yes. And he breaks out because he steals the log lady's nurse uniform <laughs> and just walks out <laughs> and steals a car. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of like Halloween, but more fun. Right. Halloween is a bit dour for me. I meant like in the sense that, you know, Michael just kind of steals. The oh car yeah. Gets out. Um, but doesn't steal a nurse's uniform. That he would be more have. exciting. So Trick or Treats is one of my favorites. The other one I love is Trick or Treat, the 1986 hair metal movie. Which will be important later. Which will be important later. And I don't really want to say too much about that either. If you haven't seen it, it's incredible. Basically, this obsessive metalhead kid, his his favorite musician, kills himself in this satanic ritual. Uh, he gets a copy of the the only pressing of the new album, which From? Gene Simmons yeah. gives him because he has a cameo as a DJ. Playing like a howling wolf character. Yep. You know? And so the kid plays the record. It summons Sammy Kerr, who is the name of the musician. Who's like a weird amalgam of like... Blackie Lawless. Yeah, he was supposed to be played by Blackie Lawless from Wasp, which would have been the greatest shit ever. But, but also kind of like Motley Crue vibe in there as well. Definitely. Definitely a Nikki Six feel. And he looks a little bit like George Lynch from Dokken. I can see that as well. Uh, and I think George Lynch is hotter than Sammy <laughs> Kerr, but it's the same kind of vibe. Um, and it's just amazing. It's like, if you've never seen it, it's one of the most perfect Halloween movies. The Ragman. The Ragman. The Ragman will get his revenge. Um, and the only, the other one that I should mention, which we watched last year and I saw it for the first time is this fucking crazy slasher movie called girls night out that I don't remember that at all. We watched it on Halloween. I don't remember that at you all. You were there. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. <laughs> well, it's basically a combination of Halloween, the movie Halloween Animal House and a sort of like sorority row type slasher movie where I think How drunk was I? You were pretty drunk. Okay. Uh they're supposed to be, I want to say they're supposed to be in college and not in high school, <laughs> but it's all this shit where they're having a Halloween party, 
but part of the party is this scavenger hunt that's organized by a local DJ. It's so awesome. I really remember none I, of this. I want to say that it might also be like 79 because it's the first usage of the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy glove, the razor glove. I guess we're going to have to watch it again this year on Halloween if you don't remember it. I it's guess. awesome. It the great thing like, about being my friend is I have the memory of like a fucking gnat. So you can show me things multiple times and I'm amazed like a child every single time. I mean, that's all part of the fun, but... <laughs> Well, it's, you know, it's nice to be excited by something every time rather than being like, oh, I've seen this before. 51st Dates, the horror movie. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but Girls Night Out, cannot recommend it enough. Seems like nobody has watched it. And then, of course, I always have to watch Elvira, too. Oh, yeah. Her Halloween special or the movie. Well, she's got... So I like both of the movies a lot, especially Speaking the first the movie, one. The episode we lost was Elvira, so we will eventually circle around to it again at some point yeah we did it in february so i feel like this upcoming february for we should do a valentine's to elvira, elvira valentine special yes maybe and we can get elvira we can <laughs> i doubt that uh we we can talk about her so she made two movies as i'm sure most of you know but she also did a series of these really awesome halloween specials i want to say she did like three of them for mtv yeah and they're great yep well, it's funny you mentioned Trick or Treat because that plays into where I wanted to go with the music portion. So last episode we did um, black artists who we felt were representative of goth music or may have been goth adjacent. And influenced goth music, definitely right. also. Um, this episode we decided because this is the Halloween special, we're just going to say whatever. So we're going to feature some of our favorite Halloween music. And you mentioned Trick or Treat. So I decided I wanted to use the record from Trick or Treat by the band Fastway. Um, it's so good. Well, so Fastway is a funny band because the lead singer is also the guy from Flogging Molly, which, which is, is such so a weird, weird career trajectory to go from a really awesome hair metal band to fucking shitty Irish punk, which is one of the worst subgenres of music to have ever existed. It outside truly Outside of is. the Pogues, who were not technically punk, but were like... They're like post-punk-ish. Yeah. I mean, I love the Pogues. Pogues amazing. Flogging Molly sucks. Terrible. Most Fast Irish way is punk the better is band. terrible. Fastway is the better band. And the great thing about the record that they did for Trick or Treat is that it just blatantly rips off other songs from other bands. Like Don't Stop the Fight is oh, a rewrite of uh, Metal Health by Quiet Riot. Um, after Midnight is a literal, it's literally stealing Living After Midnight by Priest. And um, it's just, it's a great record because the movie itself is awesome. Um, and I don't think hair metal gets enough credit for being as, you know, entertaining as it was. I know a lot of people like to joke about hair metal, you know, I mean, grunge I love hair metal killed it. Oh, I love it too. I was actually a grunge kid who resented hair metal until I got older. <gasps> how dare you? So I'm the other way around. We talked last time about how like the Deftones and new metal got me into all of like the cool. Yeah. Good I'm still music. shocked by that. Grunge sort of inadvertently got me into hair metal because I had a strong resentment for hair metal growing up because it was like grunge killed that shitty music until I actually listened to it. And, you know, Wasp being the prime example of that, they were like a mixture of like heavy metal and hair metal. Yes. And I mean, Wasp is incredible. At some point we should do ghoulies so <sighs> we can just do a whole Wasp episode. Right. But um, one of the one of the things I wanted to highlight is that there's actually kind of an overlap between hair metal and goth, at least 
on the visual aesthetic level? Well, I mean, also not even just visual aesthetic, but topically, I think as well. I mean, you have something like Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil, right. which... Both were very into Satanism and both were playing with those ideas. The difference being that, you know, old goth people don't become fundamentalist Christians like old metalheads do like Blackie. It is baffling to me. Yeah, Dave Mustaine, all of those dudes just went went to the other side. They went to the dark side. Hello, me. So <laughs> the Fastway record Jesus is again. great because it's like a greatest hits of all of the best metal songs from that decade with, you know, some of Fastway's original stuff. The Trick or Treat title track is awesome. highly recommend it and it's one of those records i always listen to every year around this time of year because it's just fun and you know halloween should be fun it should not be serious i don't care for anything that wants to you know make halloween you know something that is not fun i mean as a religious holiday like i guess i can sort of differentiate it in my head between Halloween, one of the best days of the year, quite possibly the best day of the year, and Samhain, which is a serious religious festival. Look, I understand you want to sacrifice the blood of children because you're Irish, but... I do. I mean, I also am equally germanic and scandinavian and you've got we like the love worst to sacrifice people I was like you're, you've got the worst combination of like european cultures that are just you know relentlessly Real evil. angry <laughs> that just like to go on raids yep so what do it. you listen to during halloween so i was thinking about this a lot and part of why i brought up this difference between halloween and Samhain, which if you don't know what the hell i'm talking about if you see it written out, it looks like Sam Hain. Oh, you're going to talk about Danzig, I'm going to talk you? about Sam Hain, the Danzig band. God damn it. <laughs> it always comes back to Danzig. And you said he wasn't goth, but... He is goth. We've mentioned it multiple He's times. He's like goth Elvis. I thought you said he didn't. He wasn't goth oh, before. What? No. Sam Hain. So Samhain is the way you pronounce the name of the holiday, the pagan holiday. Sam Hain is the way you pronounce the name of the band. and Which also, is also great. Yes. So... To me, because I listen to so much goth music year round, like I would never associate something like Sisters of Mercy with Halloween because that's just what I listen to a lot. 
But I do think I tend to maybe associate death rock a little bit more with Halloween. And I don't know if we if we ever talked about the difference between goth and death rock or I mean they tend to be very similar. Um goth grew out of death rock to an extent. A or lot of they the, sort of like grew up alongside each right. other. And a lot of, you know, death rock bands eventually transitioned into goth. Yeah. You know, uh, Christian death being one of the examples. Exactly. So I, I feel like if you don't know that term. So when, and we've talked about this before on past episodes, but when goth music started, it basically started as post-punk as, you know, what came after the punk music of the seventies. And so you get a lot of shit that I call goth adjacent, like (laughs) Nick Cave and the Swans and things that aren't normally labeled under sort of pure goth music, like Susie and the Banshees and the Cure and stuff like that. But Death Rock, it is sort of like traditional goth, but with a much more aggressive, like punk flavor to it. Right. There's often a lot of like maybe kind of tribal drumming. And I love a lot of death rock music, but I definitely listen to it most, I would say, in the fall. And, you know, I, I really sort of struggled with what album I wanted to talk about or what band I wanted to talk about because I love Christian Death. They're one of my favorite bands. I love Virgin Prunes, and I think they, they definitely... are one of my favorite bands. Yes, they're so good. And I think we should figure out a way to have like a separate episode where we talk all about the Virgin Prunes. We absolutely should. Um, but there's also other stuff that's great, like 45 Grave is definitely early death rock. Speaking of Return of the Living Dead yep, uh, from earlier, things like Rudimentary Peni and their one Even out. to an extent like The Damned, you could sort of say influence that because they were doing that before yeah. death rock was a thing, but they were using that aesthetic. Definitely. And one of the things I find interesting about death rock is it, it, it was kind of a thing for years that no one really termed until the early 80s. Because if you look at a lot of the novelty records that were coming out in the 50s, rock novelty records. And that's definitely where Mash, it comes Bobby from. Boris Pickett. Which is um, awesome. All of those records were kind of an influence for that. And then you see bands like The Damned and The Cramps pick that up and revive it in the mid to late 70s. And I... I'm glad that you brought that up because I think especially with a band like the cramps who we will have to also have a separate episode where we can talk about the cramps because they're one of my favorite bands. Of There's got to be a movie connection there somewhere. Totally. Um, the thing that I think is maybe a little bit distinctive about death rock thematically is that all of those bands were very into horror movies and incorporated that into their their lyrics. Yeah. So like you get that kind of shit with the misfits, but definitely like Christian death was really openly into horror movies. Uh, you know, as you said, the cramps. And so I think you can draw this really interesting line from those early kind of, Halloween sort of records like Monster Mash and even Screaming Jay Hawkins and stuff like that to the death rock of the late seventies. But if I have to just pick one, even though I know I talked about like 10 things (laughs) in the last five minutes, it would be Sam Hain. And I love all of their, you know, small handful of albums, but definitely November coming fire is even though it has November in the title would be my Halloween pick, probably. I mean, November 1st is All Saints Day, the day after Halloween. True. 
Isn't there a movie like the day after Halloween? There has to be. There must be. I know there's a bad 2000s horror movie called All Saints Day or All Souls Day. No, I just mean like the day after Halloween, you know, like the day after tomorrow or something. There's got to be a horror movie called The Day After Halloween. And if you have not made like a Halloween, like if you haven't made like one of those like seasonal slasher movies called The Day After Halloween, you're doing it wrong because there is an idea right there. The same way there's no Black Friday horror movie. So there is a movie called The Day After Halloween. What's it called? An like, alternate, is it an alternate title? Yeah, the alternate title is One More Minute. It's from 1979. I've never seen it. I guess this is our homework assignment. The fucking music is from Brian May. <laughs> what? <laughs> I guess. Is it a horror movie? Yeah. Brian May did the soundtrack to a horror movie called The Day After Halloween. I think so. It's an Australian thriller. Okay, so there is a movie called The Day After Halloween, but you should still and steal that And we're idiots and haven't seen it. So, well, it has like three or four different titles just from glancing. I've never seen it, so. Well, we will have to watch it and get back to you. I don't know if it's a goth movie, but, you know, to uh, the extent of what we were doing today, we have talked about at least two goth movies. The third one we will not mention. Well, yeah, and we, you know, we talked about... Sam Hain. We talked about Fastway. We talked about the Irish and their inherent evil ways. Um, I feel like out of all the peoples of this earth, the Irish, it, Halloween belongs to us. That's why I said Halloween 3 is the wokest horror movie of all time because it's about the Irish reclaiming their birthright. It's not really a birthright, but it's a holiday. It's a birthright. Okay. I. <laughs> it's my right to put on a mask and eat candy and slaughter children.